Hi, welcome everyone. Today, we actually do not have a special guest. Our special guest is each other, I guess you could say. We would like to talk about how the podcast came about and how we started covering Sister Kathy's case, as well as how Gemma and I got into contact. I had a phone call conversation with Jean, who many will remember from the Jean Rowe case. During that conversation, she was talking about how so far, a lot of people who have joined us since we started Sister Kathy's series on the podcast, they don't know a whole lot about myself. And so a little suggestion she had was maybe talk about myself just a little. Everyone, of course, knows Gemma. You all saw her in The Keepers. And so it was just a little suggestion. Shane, I'm going to ask you just to talk about how you even got started and like, what is a podcast? What drew you to it? What were sure. you doing at the time? Were you doing something else? Yeah, so it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people don't know this story, but I do feel it is an interesting story. I went to college for forensic psychology. During that time, even in high school, I was a very quiet lab nerd type of person, very to myself. But when I got to college, it was the same way. And of course, working in forensics, you don't have an opportunity to meet a whole lot of people. You are very scientific in your approach. On on a slight dare, a good friend of mine dared me to go to an open mic night at a local stand-up comedy club. So I did, and I did really well. I just talked about real-life scenarios. My family has a Southern Baptist background, and my brother's gay, so what else could someone ask for if they're going to stand up in front of a mic? And of course, it, it didn't hurt that I'm six foot nine, so I already, when I get on a stage, I already look the part. Everyone's just, who is this person? So it was a very interesting time. Of course, that put me outside of my comfort zone. And so throughout college, I did my college courses. I had an internship with a crime lab. And I also did stand-up, and I learned that stand-up was a way for me to get the thoughts of forensics and death and murder out of my head. And I enjoyed making people laugh. For those moments where I could make people laugh on a comedy stage, it was a feeling that is indescribable because for those moments, you know that no matter what problems they're having, like they're just forgetting about it, and no matter what type of political background they come from or any racial injustice they may have or have gone through, you just know that they're enjoying themselves. And it was a good feeling to be a part of it. When I graduated, I took the easy way out, I feel like. Instead of going through and using my education and getting a career in forensic psychology or in, into forensics, I ended up sticking with stand-up because it was easy to me to make people laugh and I enjoyed it. I feel that, and this is no, I'm not trying to dog any stand-up comedians, but for myself, I knew that was the easy way out for me because I chose it because I didn't have to face negative feelings to know that people are capable of horrible things. I feel like that's not a thought that you want to try to sleep at night thinking that. So stand-up was easy. My dad was hit by a drunk driver many years ago. I know I created a special episode earlier this year about my dad. But because of that, my uncle was the one who stepped up and was the male figure I had in my life. He was a great person. He wrote country music as well as gospel music. Very kind, generous, dependable, respectable person, unlike anyone I've ever met before. He developed cancer in his throat, which was horrible because 
I saw someone who, to me, was such a strong, positive influence and always spoke so kindly. And he used his own voice to sing and create music that just everyone enjoyed. So cancer took that away from him because, of course, he couldn't even speak very well at that time. And after a few years of radiation, the cancer didn't kill him. But he died as a result of the radiation. It deteriorated his jaws. So ultimately, one night, he suffocated. So during his funeral, I was still doing stand-up at that time. And I saw hundreds and hundreds of people coming who had just impacted in a positive way. Not only was he doing the country music and the gospel music, writing and singing, he also worked at a career center uh, for building trades. and so. My family, he grew up learning how to build homes and working on homes and construction. So he helped troubled high school students who got into some bad things. He helped them learn those building trades and learn how to build a home, a sense of community for people who wouldn't have had it otherwise. So just to meet those people and know that huge impact that he had on their lives. At that time, I just looked and I reflected back on my life without having him anymore. And I wondered, was taking the easy way the correct thing to do for me? I didn't feel like stand-up was giving me pride. I didn't feel like I was making a change. I was making people laugh each night, but then the next day they went back to work and carried on with their own lives. For reasons why it's hard for me to remember to explain, I decided to create a podcast where I could talk to family members of victims. At the time, there really wasn't that podcast option out there. And I wanted to hear less of people telling me the story and more of people who know the story and can tell us more about the people behind the crimes that that we see. My brother helped me name it. And of course, we changed it after the first year. But the original name for it was American Crimecast. And quickly, a family in Cleveland, Ohio saw it and they decided that they would like to use it as an opportunity to talk about one of their loved ones who had been murdered many years prior. And for them, they had never really spoken out about it because it was such a horrific event and it was so unexpected that they never really had an opportunity where they felt like comfortable enough to talk to someone about it. So the case was the murder case of Beverly Jaros. She was 16. She was strangled with a rope and stabbed 42 times in Garfield Heights, Ohio, which is a suburb of Cleveland. She was only 16. She was Catholic. She went to a a private Catholic school. That was really my first connection with anything to do with Catholics. I was not raised Catholic. I didn't know anything about Catholics at the time. I don't even know if I had friends that were Catholic, to be honest with you. For the first year, I changed the name because I was covering some cases outside of America. And also, people kept misspelling it. So I decided to change it so people could spell it correctly. Wow. I didn't know all that about you. Yeah. Do you still ever do stand-up comedy? I haven't done it for probably two years. However, anytime I go to a live show, which a live show for podcasting is basically podcasters get together and they allow your listeners to come out and meet you in person. And we talk about a case. It could be related to a series or not. But whenever I get in front of a mic, I like to be funny. So those people who have come to live shows that I've been a part of, 
have been able to see those funny sides of me. In fact, I joined two podcasters early this year in Indianapolis for a live show. And before I started, I ended up doing a little stand-up and it went over really well. It was a nice way for our listeners to hear a less serious side of me, but still be able to laugh. And it was a fun experience because I was able to talk about my grandma and she she's a real hoot. So I gave a couple of funny stories about her that people really enjoyed and she was there too. So I embarrassed her a little bit. <laughs> so Shane, talk to us about how the whole Sister Kathy case came under your radar. Yeah, so right after I covered Beverly's case, of course, it reached a lot of people. And a lot of people, I feel like, from the Catholic community, because she was such a devout Catholic, her entire family was. And in large, I noticed that many Catholics, even nuns, knew Beverly and knew her case and knew her family as well. So a listener who had listened had told me about a nun who was murdered in Baltimore many years ago, and that it was still an unsolved case. They did not mention anything about abuse, anything like that, just the fact that there was a nun who was murdered and it was an unsolved case. I looked into a little bit of it just to see, one, that it was still unsolved, and two, how she was found, what type of murder was this. I didn't have much more information. I wasn't looking for much more information because I'd rather find someone who knows something and have that actual conversation of discovery of me learning about it and asking questions before trying to find answers on the internet. So I tried to find someone who I could speak with and oddly enough found Teresa who said that she knew about Sister Kathy's case and could talk about it. So I spoke to her on the phone and that very first phone call, she starts talking about the Jane Doe, Jane Roe case and her experience with Father Maskell and the abuse and how Many people felt that Sister Kathy could have been murdered because of what had been going on. And that was like very shocking because I had no idea that it it was down that direction at all. And after that very first interview, we put it out. And that's how I ended up getting in contact with you. Because, of course, you also know information. So we spoke shortly and then we had a phone call conversation where we could talk about it. And that's how that all came about. So when did you, when was your, your phone call with Teresa? You, the Keepers came out in May of 17. So how, and I think I spoke to you in April. You were before the other requests for interviews. So yeah. I think I said more on your podcast than I was supposed to, but that was before I was advised to not speculate and right. to have a person on the phone with me from Netflix. But I think with you, we just freewheeled it. Yeah, I didn't know about the keepers until our first conversation, I believe. I had no idea about it being filmed, anything in that regard. I believe my interview with Teresa was probably two weeks prior to ours, either the end of March or the beginning of April. Mm-hmm. Remember when I spoke with you, it was about a month before the Keepers was to release to Netflix because you had the date. You knew the date at that time. Right. Correct. So that's how Shane and I met. Then you and I talked through the summer, I think like casually or texting or just messaging what was going on. The series was released. And then talk about your, I think we just like maintained 
communication, but you were also working on the redhead murders. Yeah. During that first conversation with you, I feel like anyone who has an opportunity to meet you or talk to you over the phone, you're a very genuine person. And so, of course, I had already seen the keepers and I knew more about you. We did keep in contact there. But when I started on the Redhead Murders, for those who didn't follow along to that series, this was a series of six women who were murdered about 35 years ago by who we believe is the same man. But out of the six, five of them remained Jane Doe victims unidentified throughout that 35 years. So there wasn't information on them. There was probably enough for a 10 minutes worth of an episode. So I remember hitting a block because I wanted to find information. I wanted to try to help name them find out why the communities that they were murdered in forgot about them, find out who could have done this, maybe try to spark new info, like new information coming out. Maybe people remembered something that they never came forward with. It's a different time. So I started looking into the case and immediately I hit a block because the detectives in charge of these cases didn't want to communicate with me. What I later found out was that the reason was because they weren't being actively worked. So they literally, the information they have is in a folder that hadn't been looked at for many years. So that was very frustrating. Of course, I saw it as these are six women who most do not have a name and their cases are not being worked. So it's just so much frustration knowing these are real people. So I remember it's actually a funny story because I was in West Memphis, Arkansas. So we were inside of a mechanic place and I was, I was doing emails and stuff because we were there for a long time. And actually you gave me a phone call because I was asking you for in advice or something. Maybe I don't remember exactly what it was. And so you were going to jump on the call with me so that we could talk through it. I'll never forget it because we were in the lobby and here you call me and all of a sudden we're talking about a serial killer and the FBI and murder and bodies and there's the full waiting room. So like all these people were, what are they doing? So I, <laughs> I got the hint after I got a bunch of stairs. So I walked outside and we spoke for a long time that day. And I feel like that day was when you decided that maybe you could try to, to, to get involved and help a little bit and at least be able to help have some back and forth conversation with me. For myself, working alone for in this podcast it's a lot of me thinking about things where I don't have an opportunity to communicate it or jump mm-hmm. through ideas. Yep. So having that was amazing help. So that was when you tagged along and you started joining in. Yeah. And I remember when I think at that point you were focusing on a young woman named Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. It was a possible daughter of a victim right. of a Jane Doe and her name was Elizabeth. Right. Yeah. And I think you and I talked about you contacting her and the three of us then were on like a text thread or a message thread and it gave me the opportunity to talk to her about actually talking to you on the phone. So that was good because I began to trust you as my person to bounce ideas off of. Last year was a little tricky and tough at some times and I needed somebody who was not connected to case or the abuse or the murder to be able to get some feedback on my ideas or what was going on with me. So it's worked out really well. And I don't know if you guys know this, but Shane could be my grandson, but he's really (laughs) one of my best advisors. 
because he doesn't judge me and he always takes up for me and he's very supportive and everybody needs somebody like that in their life. So I appreciate that. But Shane, could you just talk about once Elizabeth began to talk to us on the phone, we had a couple of joint conversations. I'm not going to use the word three-way. That sounds so crude. We had conversations on the phone, group conversations, and she began to share more information. And then where did that go with the the six murders you were looking at? Yeah. So I remember hitting kind of a block because this was the first person who had a potential to be tied to the series of women. And I really wanted to find out more about her mom. We hadn't gotten the DNA results back yet. So it was still a long waiting process. So I wanted to find out more about her mom so I could learn about her background and maybe how she ended up in this small area in Kentucky. So maybe that could help me know more information about our other victims. But communicating with her from such a far distance, I mean, she had no idea who I was. And at the time, I believe there may have just been one or two episodes that I had created, not very much. So you helped me speak to her to make her feel comfortable to talk over the phone. I do think that a lot of times when I approach certain people, it does make them feel more comfortable to know that there is a woman involved. A detective came and knocked on the door, and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me down there my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. In her specific case, the Jane Doe who we ended up finding out was her mom, we believe that there was possible prostitution involved. So I feel like that was also a, a hindrance on getting her to talk to me. So I don't think that ever would have happened had you not joined in. But since then, it was amazing because out of the six, I mentioned that five were Jane Doe's. 
But not only did we get the DNA results back on her mom, who turned out to be Regina, we also received two more identifications. One from actually here in Indianapolis. I'm in Indiana, but I had no idea that one of our victims would be from Indianapolis or Indiana at all. These were victims found in West Memphis, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. The third identified was in Tennessee as well. The more people that we're able to identify, the more that we're able to look into their past and to find out what could have led them to that area. And also, it's nice because we do believe that this is the same person. So I think that as a result of these identifications being made and more of a public awareness about these women because of the series, that these detectives in charge of their cases are finally re-examining them. What they didn't have back 35 years ago was an awesome ability to use DNA. So what we know is that in many of their cases, those detectives are re-examining evidence to try to find DNA, which is super helpful because imagine if one person is responsible for six murders, what's the likelihood of them being able to find just a little bit of DNA in one of those six? And that could solve all of them. Two points I want to bring up is one is the value of a lot of people knowing about the case, and that's the benefit of podcasts and having Facebook pages. So those of you who are not gone to the Redhead Murders page, you need to do that. But also crowdsourcing is critical because if we have a question about something, or let's say the police ask me a question about somebody that might have been in Sister Kathy's life, I can put it out there and we get answers in 24 hours. You mentioned crowdsourcing. Of course, through being a podcaster for going on three years now in this genre, and I'm sure, Jim, you may get this as well, but a lot of people who have missing loved ones or their loved one is murdered, they get contacted a lot by individuals who fit that description where they would like help and advice. Feel that most people feel that will never happen to me and I'll never be in a situation where one of my loved ones or friends will be murdered or go missing. But it happens more times than I feel that people care about thinking about. It does happen to everyday people. And that's a part of what our, this podcast has been trying to let people be aware of is it does happen. Those, I have two pieces of advice that I always give out. The first is use social media. Not only use social media, but a lot of people don't realize that within Facebook, there are these sales sites for rummages and all these things. And I know this because my mom uses it a lot. They're always specific to certain areas. So for example, your county or your city, if you have a large enough city, will probably have their own sale or yard sale site. That's very helpful when you're trying to find a missing person or find information about a murder case in a specific area. Most of the time, the administrators of that site do not care if you post a flyer or something, uh, trying to find information or a quick post saying, hey, my, my brother or sister is missing. This is what they look like. This is what we know. If you have any information, please contact us. That's a great way to reach a specific audience for absolutely nothing. So I definitely recommend using that as a resource. The second, and this is so important, I didn't know it until we were covering the Redhead Murders. There is no requirement 
for states to utilize a database for missing people. The database is called NamUs, and it's funded by the Department of Justice. And it's, and it's basically ran by the Department of Justice and a university in Texas. But with NamUs, if there's two types of profiles that get entered. If you're a missing person, they can enter that missing person profile into the database along with DNA and all that information, dental, fingerprints. And then the second type of profile is if an unidentified body is found. That profile will be uploaded into NamUs. And ideally, those two profiles would be linked. If your missing person profile and the unidentified body profile gets linked, that's very important. And so far, there are only, I believe, four states that require it to be used. Something that, because of the Redhead series and learning all of this firsthand and working with victims of these Redhead murders, working with their family members, I have been trying to change the law in Indiana to try to get that to be a requirement. As I mentioned earlier, one of our victims was from Indiana, and her unidentified remains have been in the database for many years because she was found in Tennessee and they require it. Because NamUs wasn't used, her daughter actually passed away from cancer last year before ever finding out what happened to her mom. That was a very emotional time, and that caused me to want to create change and change that law. How can people that are listening find out if NamUs is used in their own state, and what could they do if they want to advocate for that? They can Google it. I know that now Kentucky is online to be the next state to, to require it. If it's not a requirement, it definitely needs to be. I know in Indiana, there is a rate of less than 5% of missing people or unidentified remains that have been missing or the remains have been found for more than six months. Only 5% of, that, of those people have been entered into the database, which is way out there in terms of harm. So what they can do is contact your local lawmakers for your state. Not just email them, but set up a time to go talk to them to try to get that law changed and try to get it added because I feel like no one wants that to happen to anyone that they love. But if it does, you do want that to be something that's out there that can be utilized as a resource. Now, detectives are not required to upload it in the states that it's not a law. Family members can't petition their detectives in charge of their loved one's case to be utilizing it. So if you do have a missing loved one still, and if one of your loved ones does go missing, do ask the detective to ensure that they are utilizing NamUs. I want to add one more piece of advice to what Shane just said. A lot of you send me messages, and I have left my Facebook Messenger open because I also get a lot of interesting leads that I can forward to the police. But I get a lot of requests from people who have similar stories to Sister Kathy's, not the murder of a nun because she knew too much, but people who are concerned about a clergy perpetrator or finding out about a murdered loved one. And they say, how did you start with this? And we didn't like intentionally set out to do this. It just sort of evolved. But the best piece of advice I can give adds to Shane in saying that social media is so available now that if you do not, if you are looking for someone or if you 
are investigating the murder of someone to set up a Facebook page. If you don't know how to do that, get somebody who does to do a really good job. Have the person's name looking for so-and-so or justice for the person's name. And then invite every single one of the people on your friends list to like it or to come and join it. That way, you get the conversation started. You ask your friends to share it with their friends. And exponentially, it grows like within days. It's amazing. And you will find that there are a lot of people out there that want to help you or that have a piece of information. I've had leads from Ireland, Argentina. I I can't even tell you the number of places all over the United States, Canada, People who knew something or heard something or were here in Baltimore and learned something, sharing information with me. And all of that we can put into the big puzzle piece. So get yourself a Facebook page that's not your own personal one, but that is set up for the purpose of what you're looking for. And you mentioned this a little bit, but I wanted to ask you, how did you and Abby start looking into Sister Kathy's murder? Abby and I went to Keogh together. We were in the same classes at times. Abby was brilliant in science and math, and I leaned more towards art, music, writing, English. But so we weren't social friends, but we knew each other. And everybody wondered what happened to Kathy when she disappeared and then was found. Her body was found a few months later. But then the years went by, and we were just figured it was just an unsolved case. And then in the 90s, Everybody received a letter from either Jean's family, as is demonstrated in the keepers, or from the attorneys that were representing Jean and Teresa in the Doe Rowe case, asking if any of us had any information about anything that happened to Keogh that was not right. So my sister and I both went to Keogh, but neither one of us knew anything. Then rumors started and we, oh, so-and-so was a victim and this person was a victim, but we knew nothing. And we followed it in the newspaper. Uh, Bob Erlinson, in fact, was one of the reporters and we've talked to him on our podcast and he's in the series. It was covered more in the 90s than it was when it actually happened, but it still went unsolved. So in 2008, I think, I got a call from, no, I guess it was 2006, from a man named Tom Nugent from Michigan. Tom was looking through Keo yearbooks. He wanted to write a story about who killed Sister Kathy. He already had met with Jean and Teresa and knew them from the Doe Row case and had tried to cover some of that. But when he called me, I said I didn't know anything about the abuse or the murder, but that she was the reason I became a teacher. And he used that in his story. And we became e-pals, Facebook pals. I guess this was before Facebook anyway. And then about five years ago, this story ran in the city paper. The big papers didn't want to touch it. And now they can't get enough of it. We tried to get the Sun Papers to publish it, the New York Times, the Washington Post. Tom was a well-known journalist around the country. He's a great writer, but nobody wanted to deal with it because it involved the Catholic Church looking bad, and there were some legal issues that were unresolved. 
So Tom went to the city paper, which is, it's like Baltimore's Rolling Stone. He loved it. So they published that story. And that's what Tom reading in the attic at the beginning of the movie. After that, there was some new attention to it. But then that kind of died down. So five years ago, and I still have this email. I sent him an email that said, when are you coming back to Baltimore to finish this story? And so I have kept every single email involved with the keepers on my computer. There are tens of thousands of emails, everything. And he came back to Baltimore and we finally met. We went on a tour with two other Keo friends of where everything happened. And he had the opportunity to talk to Jean again while he was here. He went to visit her. He already knew her. And so that's how the investigation started. Now, Abby was like the voice of reason. I'm more emotional. So we set up the Facebook page called Archbishop Keogh High School Survivors. And that was for anybody who wanted to talk privately about their abuse. And the requirement was that you had to be a Keogh alumni to get on there. And so we had people start to spill their guts. I asked a question about Kathy's murder and somebody retorted that didn't belong on the survivor's page. So then we set up a public page called Justice for Kathy Sesnick and Joyce Malecki. And anybody could join that one and talk about the murder. So it was a learning curve for me in that I knew nothing about abuse or abuse survivors. I knew nothing about murders. Nobody I knew had ever been murdered. So I needed to learn how to facilitate those pages without offending anybody, but still while giving people resources and the option of sharing information with us. So if I would get irritated that somebody said, this isn't the page for you to ask about the murder, Abby would be the voice of reason and say, that makes sense. Let's take a step back and let's set up a different page where everybody can talk about it. So it worked really well. And we're like yin and yang, totally. We're total opposite personalities. But in this situation, it worked very well. So we began to do a lot of, we, we're both intelligent people. I'm not going to say we're not. And we were of the same mind that we wanted to find out what happened to Kathy. We just operate differently. I'm very, what am I, left-brained, right? What's the emotional art side? Without people. Okay. And she's the other side. So Abby is the researcher. She has tons of files, boxes of files that are all labeled. Everything's in order. Mine is more notebooks. I draw a lot of diagrams. I have to draw out maps of where things happened. I get on the phone and talk to people. I knock on doors, literally. That was interesting because with the filmmakers with me, I was a little braver than going out and doing it by myself because if something happened, it wouldn't be on camera. But That's how it all evolved. And about a year and a half into that, in November of 2013 or 14, geez, I can't remember. Anyway, I got a phone call from Jessica Lawson Hargrave, who is the producer for Tripod Media, a two-person filmmaking team. And we had a two-hour conversation and she asked me what I, how I felt about 
being involved in a documentary about what we were doing. And I trusted her. She had already talked to Jean. They had actually been to meet with Jean and her family several times. And I felt like if Jean was comfortable with this and if she had made the commitment and her family was there with her, that I respected that and I wanted to help and do what I can. So with that, the filmmakers came to my home and... We had some conversations and we started talking about what happened. They took copious notes. They didn't do any filming yet, but that's how they operate. If there was somebody they wanted to interview or talk to, they would make the overture by email first and then by phone and then in person. And they wouldn't bring a camera the first time. They wanted that person to be comfortable with what they were doing. And once they were willing to go on camera, then, of course, you sign a release document that says the filmmakers can use anything that they have filmed or anything that you've told them. That was a little scary. This was all new to us. But respect and our well-being was always their priority. We always had the option of saying, I can't talk about that or I don't think that's something I am willing to do. So at the same time, and I don't want people to feel sorry for me, but my mom was dying of cancer and she knew nothing about what I was doing. Now she knows everything. She knows all the answers. I'm still asking her who killed Sister Kathy because I think she's up there with her and she knows what happened. But it was at, the filming was actually a good distraction because my siblings and I were all taking turns hanging out with my mom who was alert and wonderful right up to the very end, but it was stressful for everybody. So I would come back from being with her and come into my house and they would be there waiting for me with something to eat and a bottle of wine and playing with my dog. And it was a family. And so I think we've all become a family. We talked to Ryan and Jean last night on the phone and I just feel that bond again. I was sad after we got off the phone. I got a little depressed because I was like, I really miss having them like physically in my life geographically, but it is what it is and time moves on and we've made a lot of progress. Yeah. What were some highlights and lowlights since the keepers went out and it was there? I know that during the filming, you had no idea that it was going to be on Netflix. We knew it was going to be someplace big, but. We weren't sure where. I kind of in my head predicted that it was going to be a worldwide wake-up call. And I remember asking Ryan, how do we handle that? And he said, you'll have a person assigned to you. And so when you're asked to do interviews, you're going to, ha- you're going to send Netflix the name of the person and what they want to do. And then your person and Netflix will decide if they want to say yes to that news agency and we will set the call up for you and i thought man that's a lot of red tape rather than me just getting on the phone realized how important that was because my person would get on the phone with me and she would put the call through and then she would stay on the phone she wouldn't interrupt but i would have a conversation with the interviewer and you got a free one ahead of time because I wasn't involved with Netflix at that time. I didn't have to sign a contract with them. It was just for my own safety. 
But if somebody asked something inappropriate or that I really didn't have the answer for, she would interrupt and say, we're not going to go there. Sometimes they would ask boring questions and she would just say, we're not going to answer that one for now. I also learned from Ryan and Jessica tips for uh, interviewing people and being interviewed. I'm still learning that. The highlights for me, I really welcomed the opportunity to meet the people that are in my life now, like you, Shane, because I've moved from my home to another city and the people here know who I am. And I have gotten wonderful friends, both from the keepers, people that comment a lot or that are Facebook friends, but I've never met. And I've had people in my town now that'll say, my husband and I would like to take you out to eat. Now we saw the documentary and everybody's safe. I'm not dumb. I'm not going to get in the car with a stranger, but I love that. And my life is so rich because of this experience, both happy and sad. Some of the survivors have become my dearest friends and I value what they have to offer me. They've bared their souls. They've taught me a lot about integrity and courage. And that you can't put a price on that. The, I think that would be the highlights. The lowlights, this has changed everybody. And for me, I always saw myself as an advocate and somebody who's not afraid to be on TV or radio or in a podcast. And I was a teacher. I'm used to standing in front of hundreds of people. I also trained teachers. And I trained teacher mentors. So I had the professional development background, which I thought would come in handy. But interestingly enough, there was another side to that. Some people began to resent that I was in the media a lot. And I never saw that coming. Abby is very shy. She chooses not to take those invitations as often as I do. She's wonderful in interviews. She nails it. She's very articulate, but she has children and grandchildren and two homes and a husband. And it just wasn't something that she was either available for or chose to do. On the other hand, I'm fine with it because my feeling is the more people know who I am and what our message is, which is still twofold to find resources for survivors and to find out who killed Kathy, I'm going to take that opportunity. I didn't realize that in some of those situations, yes, somebody paid for me to go to a New York or somebody paid for me to go to Los Angeles. And yes, I had somebody do hair and makeup. It is what it is. And that was resented by a good number of people who went on the attack. The other thing I didn't know about was something called a troll, T-R-O-L-L. I had no idea what that was until I realized on Facebook that there are some people that are either jealous or unbalanced, and they thrive on poking fun at somebody who's in the spotlight. So I needed help with that. And Ryan White and Jessica Hargrave, they were great therapists. My family, people like you, gave me a lot of guidance, but I would say that was the hardest thing for me 
And last winter around this time, when I, right before I moved, I spent a lot of time alone processing all of that. And I did have, I care too much about what people think of me. And I had to move beyond that. And I had to learn that I'm not perfect. Not everybody in the world is going to love me. And I have to just rise above that and not stoop to return in kind, which I had a tendency to do at the beginning. If somebody bullied me, I probably bullied back. And I don't need to do that anymore. I just ignore it or block people or whatever. I think Facebook, the things we say and do on Facebook, you would never in a million years say do to somebody in person. Right. They'd probably get a punch in the mouth or you'd get hit in the face. That was the hard part for me. But that's just because of the person I am. I was bullied when I was in grade school as a kid. And believe it or not, folks, I am very shy. And I've had to really work hard to overcome that. Yeah, and I'll also add that a lot of people, especially behind social media, I feel like there are a lot of people, and I remember when you were facing that with social media, those trolls that we spoke about this, because I too face that in a different form after the podcast started. And when you put yourself out there, that does happen. You get people who I like to refer to them as their keyboard warriors. They have a big voice behind a keyboard, but I guarantee if you were out in public and came across them, they'd probably smile and say hi, especially if you're a six foot nine pod. I think a lot of people forget that the person that you see on camera, you don't know about the things that they are going through or that they have gone through. For example, you mentioned that you were loner almost, shy. So you wouldn't expect that when people see you in the Keepers. They don't see that side of you. I also know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but after the Keepers went out, you also had to go through the experience of having to give up your driver's license, which I'm sure that was a huge emotional journey too. You were probably going through that the same time that you were trying to deal with these trolls. Now that I feel like I'm just talking to you and not to like hundreds of thousands of people that might be listening, and I actually answered this in writing to somebody that asked about that online, I have had a number of chronic health issues all my life. I have type 1 diabetes for 56 years. I have celiac disease. And because of the diabetes, I had diabetic retinopathy that impacts your vision. And right now, my peripheral vision is limited, and I can't pass the driving test. So please don't tell me what doctor to go see or what surgery to get. I've been through all that, everybody. The other thing is that I lost my dad suddenly a week after I graduated from Keogh, and I lost my husband to cancer when we were both 35. You're right. I have a lot of baggage, and I don't know what other people bring to their the way they appear to people. But I'm very, I'm really a very vulnerable person and people think I'm real together. I know people say I intimidate people. I don't try, but I guess I've overcompensated. I asked my husband once, why weren't you threatened by me? Because I don't want to scare men. I love men. I think men are adorable, but (laughs) I think I'm like a handful. And he said, because you knew how to spell and I knew how to do drywall. And if you think about that, it makes a lot of sense. We were a really good fit. We both have androgynous qualities. I know I'm like really direct and Ryan calls me brash. Tom calls me a pit bull. I would rather (laughs) just be like a tenacious badass, which is like a good way of saying it. And I don't mind being that way. 
something you said earlier reminds me that when you said getting up and being a comedian was a way to deal with hard things, I'm wondering now if that's why I like being so silly and like getting up and dancing and singing on the camera and making crazy videos and because it's my other side that just loves life and loves to have fun and helps me deal with my health issues, my vision issues, and my own personal crap. So guys, I don't mean to be scary. (laughs) If you have minimal baggage, nice teeth and fingernails. Good credit score. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And some education would help. I hope you can speak well. I don't mean this would be like an online dating service. But For more information, please come. No, they know how to reach me. I tell you what, I'm 66, but I don't want I don't want a boyfriend that's 66 going on 80. You know, and I don't want I want like somebody who's 60 going on 40. Okay, yeah. So if you know anyone out there, there's. Ah, you're I, can't me. I just did that. Oh God. So going back to the questions I had, if you could interview anyone, so for example, if there's someone that is still alive that you could sit down for an hour and talk to and they agree to it, who would that be and why? Wow, that's a really good question. Can I have two? Sure. Okay. My first would be Sharon May. I would like to talk to her just heart to heart about her life. I feel like she really, her life changed because of the keepers and not in a good way. But yet everybody signed up for them to use whatever. And she could have said no to the interview. I would like to talk to her. People that are living, I would like to spend an hour with the files that the FBI has on Joyce Malecki. And I would like to spend an hour, I'm naming more than two, with the files that the police have on Kathy. Because I think between the two of us, Abby and I, even if it's all redacted, we could probably fill in all the names (laughs) like in about 10 minutes. Oh, I'm sure you could. Speaking, and I know I limited that to people who are alive, but we just learned yesterday that Edgar passed away. If he didn't, that would probably be someone that I would really like to sit down and talk to. Me too. And they, if they would be willing to mm-hmm. speak up. But of course, we know he passed away and we don't know a whole lot about that. Well, I, I believe he was in hospice care. I can share a little bit. Yes, he was hospitalized. He's been ill for a while. And I think people were aware of that when they saw the film that he had been ill. He actually died of congestive heart failure in hospice in a local Baltimore hospital. I think he was in the hospital for maybe a week. I don't know. He's been on the edge for a while. I've never seen him in person. I have been to the building where he and his wife lived. I do know that our filmmakers had a much longer conversation, interview with him than what was on the screen. And of course, all that gets edited. I've asked to see the whole thing. But again, now that belongs to Netflix. Netflix gets everything. I think I'm not alone when I say that as we were watching the interview with Edgar and the questions that Ryan 
and John was directing them to look at the, John is our photographer, look at the screen. I think we were probably in our heads asking follow-up questions to what Ryan was saying. So that, for example, when Ryan said, who is this person? And he said, Kathy, we probably all would have had, maybe Ryan did have a follow-up question, but in our heads, we all had a different reason for wanting to know more. So I would want to talk to him without him knowing who I was. I don't know if he saw the keepers or knew our names. That concerned me a little bit because for a while I lived not far away from where he was living at his death. So he would be one that I would want to have an informal conversation with. I do have one more question for you. But before I get to that, I wanted to make sure all of our listeners know that After this episode, we will have a two-week break to where we don't have episodes. And during that time, we get to focus on their lives and their family and their friends. Saying that, when we return, I believe January 8th, we will be releasing an episode that we recorded with Ryan and Gene about the Keepers and themselves. So that's going to be a very cool episode, and we do have more interviews lined up. The question that I have for you, Jennifer, to end this is how has the keepers impacted your life and how do you feel it's impacted the world? I can answer both questions with one answer. My life is surreal. When this came out, I got very sick. I had the worst cold and cough I've ever had in my whole life. And so for two weeks I was in my home and taking the dog out and dragging myself in and out with that. And then when I came outside and people on the street were saying, oh my God, you're Gemma. And I'm like thinking, okay, what is this about? Or somebody would recognize my voice standing behind them at the grocery store. And then people started doing selfies. And then people started sending, I got hundreds and hundreds of messages every day. And I would sit here thinking, okay, I'm by myself in my apartment. I'm still the same person. This is bizarre. And I thought this is empowering because I understand why I was born. And all the things that happened to me that were laughing about my health and my husband and stuff, I don't mean to say it was funny, but in retrospect, I really feel like my higher power was getting me ready for this. So my, my Uber lady Phyllis says there are two important days in your life. One is when you were born and the other is the day you figure out why. I'm not religious. I'm not going to go all freaky on you guys, but I really do feel like this is why I'm born and this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And when I think that this is weird, like the Pope might know who I am or There's 120,000 people on the Keepers page all over the world that know who I am. And the expectations, the pressure is a little strange because I made an offhanded comment about a political cartoon and somebody commented that there goes your role model reputation down the toilet. And I'm thinking nobody took away my First Amendment rights. So I have to be a quirk and go with the flow, but I do think that I can help impact change worldwide over something that's been going on for centuries. And that sounds really facetious, 
but it's working. And if there's anything I can do for survivors or for the police, I'm going to do it because what happened is wrong. And we haven't talked about the church, but that's the biggest thorn right now is that the Roman Catholic Church are the only ones who have not been transparent. I'm like opening my whole life up right now to all of you. And they have not shared with us what we need to know. And it's because it's been going on since the Middle Ages. So that's how the Keepers has impacted my life. And I think that's how it's impacted the world. So I'm not going anywhere, people. I'm still kicking butt. Teddy and I are fine. We are diligently working this, but I'm also making sure I have time for my own life, which means I go to the beach every day, even in the winter. I paint, I draw, I write. Oh, everybody have a Merry Christmas, okay? I'm going to sing you out. I wish, come on, Shane, we wish you a Merry, Merry Christmas. Christmas. We, we wish, wish you a Merry Christmas. We wish, wish you, you a Merry, a Merry Christmas. Christmas and a Happy New Year. Happy New Year.